Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we turn our attention to your word, we ask that we would continue to see who you are and how you work. And in that knowing you better, we would also know ourselves better as individuals, but even more specifically as a church. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Out of all of the different ways the Bible describes the church, the most prevalent metaphor is that the church is described as a body, the body of Christ. The gathered people who have been redeemed by God through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins gather together with the primary purpose of worshiping God and joining with the heavenly hosts as they worship. And we've been talking about that together over the last couple of weeks. But now we look inward a little bit more closely at exactly how God takes all of these different people and expects them to function in a way that's healthy and that accomplishes his purposes. And to do so, we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me if you've yet to do that and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can find it on that pew Bible in front of you on page 959. And as you're turning, let me just orient you to what's happening at this part of the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 is a section of the book in which the Apostle Paul is addressing the Christians in this church uh, about spiritual things and particularly spiritual gifts in the context of their gathering together. And he describes in the first part of chapter 12 some of the spiritual gifts that are given And then he says in verse 7, each one, meaning each person, is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So that is to say that when you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, God himself, indwells you, comes into your life, and the indwelling of the Spirit has a number of great benefits for you. The Spirit shows you Jesus and points you to Jesus. That is the number one role of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit convicts you of your sin. The Spirit comforts you, it says in the Gospel of John. The Spirit it works in the process of making you holy, changing you from the person that you were to the person that God wants you to become. The, pers- the Spirit leads you into all truth. And... The Spirit imparts specific gifts to you. Each Christian has at least one, maybe many, spiritual gifts that are for the purpose of glorifying God and building up the other Christians around you. 
And Romans chapter 12 lists some of those gifts and roles and Romans and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 lists some more. And I don't think that these lists in Scripture are necessarily exhaustive of all the spiritual gifts, but they are a good starting place. If you don't know what your spiritual gift is, that you can read those passages particularly and think about how the Lord has designed you to glorify him and help others. And so here's, that's all really good news. <laughs> But here's the problem. The tension comes when you have all of these different types of people. And all of you having a variety of gifts. And a temptation comes in that some of those gifts are more outwardly visible. And some of them are more quiet or behind the scenes in their nature. And the Corinthian church was struggling with placing a great and high importance on the visible gifts while uh, pushing aside those persons with either less visible gifts or less visible personalities. And so the solution then that he gives is stated very simply, how do you get past this tension point of such wide variety well, you understand the body, number one, and you exercise love toward the members of the body, number two. Today we're going to focus on number one, understanding the body. And with that, grab your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 12 through 26. Paul writes this, For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body... That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Or if the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the, ha the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we, that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And verse 27 concludes, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
to understand how different types of people with different gifts given by God can all actually come together and function as one, we must understand the nature of the body. And so Paul begins there in verse 12 by describing the church, the gathered people, as a body. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. Right away he seems to get to the tension. Unity and diversity. That's the tension. How can you have both that coexist? There's one body, he says, but there's many parts or many members in this body. And that's why the metaphor of the body is so helpful to understand the nature of the church. Because it gets, that metaphor gets right to the tension of what happens with a gathered people like this. Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the many passages that refer to the body of Christ. In verses 22 and 23 it says, And he put all things under his, being Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus is the head, the people, the gathered people, the church, the Christians, they make up the body. And this body is described as the fullness of him who fills all in all. We could spend a lot of time on that one little phrase. But I think what it means is that Jesus, who fills all, who exercises dominion over all of creation, all of creation is under his feet, it says. This reign of his is uniquely expressed in the church. He fills them to the fullest. He leads them, guides them, protects them, trains them. His body, the church, they are the fullness of the Son, Jesus. And the metaphor of the body is really quite profound. Because when you stop to think about it, the essence of what makes the body so great is some of what makes the gathered people, the church, so great. Think about your body for a moment. Have you ever stopped to think about how amazing it is that you have all of these different parts and pieces that are so interconnected that they all make up you? I mean, my fingers couldn't be any more different than my kidneys. Or consider the difference between your femur and your pancreas. Some of you don't even know what a pancreas does. But you know that if you have pancreatic cancer, you're in really big trouble. Or think about the difference between those tiny little hairs that are in your inner ear. Those little hairs that help affect your equilibrium and your balance. And contrast that to the ligaments in your ankle. They couldn't be more different than each other. And yet both serve to help you to be able to walk. The human body is an amazing thing. It's so many different members or parts. 
but still one body that makes you, you. And so it is with the church. Jesus is the head. The body is made up of all different types of members or parts or people. And he points us to this fact in verse 13. Look at it with me. He says, For in one spirit you were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. Now, by this one spirit being baptized into the body, he's not talking about physical baptism, though that mirrors something. He's talking about spirit baptism, that when you come to faith in Christ, the spirit baptizes you and indwells you. And that this joins you in, this redemption joins you into the family of God. You become part of the body, broadly, universally. And then the next natural step is you become part of the body locally. You become part of a local church. Only the gospel of Jesus, only the gospel of Jesus can bind people together in a way that they're bound together like this body of Christ. No sports team can do that. No business can do that. No common humanitarian cause can do that. People from different ethnicities, different worldviews, different social classes and status, people that couldn't be more different than each other, the Jews and the Greeks, the slaves and the free, all become part of one body. Now some of you might look at our church here, this local body, and you might appreciate the diversity that's here. Others of you might look at our local church and find diversity to be something that's lacking. In some ways, our church reflects the community around us. In other ways, it does not. But nevertheless, I think that if you move past sort of your initial visual evaluation of diversity in this room, and you actually start to get to know people, and you'll see very quickly this is a pretty diverse bunch. Rich and poor. And in between. People of different ethnic or socioeconomic backgrounds. Young, old, and in between. Different worldviews, interests, and insights. All joined together making up one body, and Jesus himself is the head. You might say it like this. God makes up a body that has unity, but not uniformity. And has diversity, but not division. God makes up this body of people, and he joins them all together. They have unity, but not uniformity. They have diversity, but, but they're not divided. And now that he reaffirms this truth to them, he explores two of the common temptations that happen very commonly as it relates to all the diversity and differences, both by way of personality and by way of spiritual gifts in a body like this. Now remember, every single one of you, if you're a Christian, has at least one spiritual gift, maybe many. If you don't know what it is or you don't know if you're serving in that type of way, you're missing out on one of the most joyous aspects of being in fellowship with the Lord himself. And when you combine a variety of gifts and a variety of personality types all in one group of people, 
the first temptation that arises is that some people are going to sense or to have a sense of worthlessness in the body. That their gift isn't good enough to actually be helpful. And so we see this in verses 15 and 16. Look with me. He says in verse 15, If the foot should say, sort of sadly or in self-pity, you might express the tone here. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong in the body. That wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. Or if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That doesn't make it any less a part of the body. Sometimes we don't view our gifts as important within the body. Or perhaps we might not even like the gifts that God gave us. We might say, I don't want these gifts, I want those gifts. I don't want my position or my personality, I want that position or that personality. And on down the line. And there are those who don't feel like their gifts can be used in profound ways for the Lord because their gifts are not the upfront gifts. And in a culture like ours that really values the visible upfront things and even sort of props up these weird ideas about celebrity for people who have upfront roles in different things, that could be discouraging for some people. It could be discouraging for some young people if they don't have gifts that can be displayed on Instagram. It could be discouraged for some of us if we're not well-known throughout the church family because of our gifts, skills, abilities, or talents. And that is true, especially if you view the church as a place where you just come to, you get together with these people for an hour and 15 minutes every Sunday, you worship God, and then you go home. Then, of course, if it's just an event that you come to, then the visible things that happen in the event will be sort of naturally brought to the fore of importance. But if you view the church not just as an event that you come to, but actually a group of people who are all growing together on this trajectory of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus, if you view them like a body, then you begin to understand that some gifts are more visible and others are not. And you are not discouraged if your gifts are not as visible. Because you understand, as verse 17 says, if the whole body had the same spiritual gift, well, it wouldn't be functioning properly, would it? Not everybody should have the same gift. Sir Michael Costa was a great orchestral conductor of the 19th century. And it was said that one day he was conducting a rehearsal which had a very large orchestra and a grand choir performing a piece. And midway through the session, the piccolo player stopped playing. It seemed innocent enough. After all, who would miss the tiny piccolo? It was a small instrument in a large section amidst a mass of instruments that were blazing away in a choir that was singing loudly. And all of a sudden, Sir Michael stopped the entire orchestra and he stopped the entire choir and he said, stop, 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 
stop. What happened to the piccolo? Where did the piccolo go? Why isn't the piccolo playing? Sometimes we might feel like the piccolo player. (laughs) That we don't have much to offer. That if we stopped serving the Lord, we stopped engaging in ministry to other people, that nobody's really going to notice because it's not that big of a deal. And yet, you need to know that the great conductor notices. And he wants all of the people to complete this orchestral masterpiece. And there's a reason why. Verse 18 points to the reason why you have the gifts that you have and the person next to you has the gifts that they have. It points to the fact that God himself actually chose them. It says this in verse 18, if you can see it with me. It says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body. And so if you're tempted to think to yourself, I don't like my gifts, I want his gifts. Or nobody cares about my gifts or my position or my place. And so I should probably just disengage and do nothing. There is a sense that if God is the one who's chosen and placed and formed the different members of the body, that questioning these things is actually questioning the will of God himself. It's actually questioning God's ability to put together the body that he values the most. And so be encouraged. So be encouraged that God makes this people a body that has unity without uniformity and has diversity without division. And God's given you a specific spiritual gift or maybe many spiritual gifts to glorify him and to build him up, to build the people around you up as well. And it doesn't mean that God is going to give you the same gift for your whole life. Sometimes your spiritual gifts change over time. And God does that. But to be encouraged to keep teaching your Sunday school class or keep helping with funerals or keep quietly and faithfully giving or keep having people over to your house and exercising hospitality or keep hosting a small group or keep encouraging others even though it's an email that happens or a phone call that happens and nobody else in the church knows about it or sees it or recognizes it as particularly important. The head knows it, and the body needs it. Verses 21 to 26 highlights the opposite tension. This is the opposite of discouragement or the feeling of insufficiency. Temptation number two is the sense of self-sufficiency in the body. In the Corinthian church, it was a not-so-quiet competition happening for those who were seeking to use the more visible gifts and have positions of power. And so people would stand up and they'd speak in tongues or they'd prophesy or they'd do a variety of things to assert their visible gifts in the body at sometimes the expense and even the temptation to just push aside those who had less visible gifts to say they're not as spiritual as the rest of us. Or we don't need the less visible things. We only need the flashy and the visible things. Clearly, they had forgotten 
The fact that the gospel of Jesus that forgives sinners <laughs> puts all men and women on equal footing at the base of the cross. Clearly they had forgotten how a body actually works. And so it says in verse 21, the eye could not say to the hand, and the tone is almost arrogantly, the eye could not say to the hand, I don't need you, nor can the head to the feet say, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And to the unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are more presentable parts do not require. So you see, the Corinthians were demeaning the things that actually should have been affirmed. And so Paul highlights the fact that rather than putting those things that are behind the scenes aside and saying that they don't matter, in fact, they should be held in even higher esteem. It says in verse 23, those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. By less honorable, he's not talking about being sinful. By less honorable, he's not talking about being less noble. By less honorable, he's simply saying less visible. That visible gifts, visible areas of service, more visible or flashy personalities among you are often naturally going to get more honor. And so for the less visible, we intentionally give honor. And that brings us into a place of greater unity. No one should think to themselves, we don't need the people in this room. Because all of the people of the body matter. The individuals that make up the whole matter. And so Gary Shadowins matters. And Greta Magazine matters. And Patrick Gray matters, even though he just stepped out. And Rose Newbold matters. I don't know if you know Rose Newbold. Rose Newbold is one of the quiet children's ministry all-stars of our church. But you'd never know if you don't make your way to that part of the building. But wow, does she matter. Or Anne-Marie Turner matters. Bob Walker matters. Amanda DeSantis matters. Joel Melnick matters. And Shirley Bush matters. I don't know if you know Shirley. Shirley is not very young. <laughs> she wouldn't mind me saying that. And yet she comes in here every Thursday morning by herself and walks through this worship center and restocks all of the connect cards that are taken, all the offering envelopes that your kids draw on or that you put money in. She gets this ready for you to worship. And wow, does that matter? You, you think that those things just sort of naturally appear. They magically, they're there. They're restocked. No, Shirley comes in every Thursday by herself and does that. And if you want to help her and get to know a great lady, 
you have the opportunity to come in on Thursday and help her as well. Every single person matters. I could have listed a thousand names. You know, some of you know who uh, Charlie Plum is. Charles Plum was a United States Naval Academy graduate. He was a jet fighter pilot in Vietnam. And after 75 missions, his plane was destroyed by a surface-to-air missile. He ejected from the plane, parachuted into enemy territory, and was captured. He spent the next six years as a POW in a communist prison camp. He survived that ordeal, and now he lectures and is an inspirational speaker around the topic of the lessons that he learned from that experience. And one day, Plum and his wife were sitting in a restaurant. And as they were sitting there, a man came over to him and said, You're Plum. You were a fighter jet pilot in Vietnam. You were shot down. And Plum was a little bit taken aback and said, Yeah, I am. How, how did you know that? And the guy said, I packed your parachute. I guess it worked. And Plum assured him, well, it certainly did work. I mean, without that parachute, I hadn't had a chance. I wouldn't have been here today. And as they talked for a while and then parted ways and the day went on and Plum laid down on his pillow that night to sleep, he couldn't stop thinking about the man. He says, I kept wondering what he might have looked like in the Navy uniform and a Dixie cup hat and a bib in the back and a bell-bottoms for trousers. I wondered how many times I might have passed him on the Kitty Hawk. I wondered how many times I might have seen him and not even said good morning or how are you or anything. Because you see, I was a fighter pilot and he was just a sailor. Plum thought of the many hours a sailor had spent on the long wooden table in the bowels of the ship, carefully weaving the shrouds and folding the silk of each parachute, holding in his hands a f- the fate of men that he had never met before. Now Plum, when he speaks, he asks his audience, who's packing your parachute? Who is packing your parachute? Because everyone has people in their life who provides what they need to make it through the day. The application, of course, is twofold. I mean, firstly, it's addressing our pride, or at least our indifference, right? That we don't allow pride or indifference to blindfold us from the people who provide a different function than we do in the life of the body. In fact, according to this text, not only should you not be blinded by it, but you should go out of your way to encourage them and to give them even greater honor. Because God makes up this body of all kinds of different people. He makes a body of unity but not uniformity, of diversity but not a body that has division. For some of us, this is not just an arrogance, though, about spiritual gifts, that my gift is better than your gift or oh, look at that person, they're not helpful to us in the cause of Christ more broadly. 
For some of us, it's more a matter of arrogance with regard to our perspective. You can imagine that with hundreds and hundreds of people, a part of Old North Church, that you have a group that have some different and even strong opinions on things. Well, at least that's what the other pastors tell me. You can imagine how when you have people that have emotional and strong opinions on things, that you have people coming from opposite directions, from different sides of an issue, that there's a temptation there. The temptation is, is when we're in a heated conversation about something or at a different point of the crossroads that you think to yourself, well, I just, we don't need them. Maybe you're a Sunday school teacher and a decision has been made about the format of the Sunday school hour, that it affects the children, it affects your schedule, it affects what you're doing. And you are on this side of the issue and another person is on the other side of the issue. And the temptation arises, I'm right, they're wrong, we don't need them. (laughs) Or maybe it's uh, an issue of second order teaching or third order teaching. Not the core gospel issues that bind us together or the person of Jesus that bind us together, or the forgiveness of sins that bind us together, or the inspiration of the Bible that binds us together. But I'm talking about second or third issues where faithful Christians have have disagreed on for a long time. And you have a different perspective than someone across the aisle from you. And so you say, oh, I can't believe that that idiot thinks that we're already in the millennium. I mean, clearly, the millennium is yet to come. I don't need them. Or maybe some of you feel pretty strongly about the musical style of a church. Churches have ripped its, ripped themselves apart over music in one direction or another. And it might be tempting for you to say, you know what, Old North would just be so much better if we got rid of all those traditionalists or all those contemporary music people. Or, you know, someone told me the other day that there are some people in our church with a pretty strong differing opinions about our current president. You wouldn't know anything about that, would you? And you might be tempted to say, if you are very supportive of the direction of our president, we don't need those crazy liberals. Or if you're very opposed to the direction of our president, you might be tempted to say, you know, our church would be so much better if it wasn't just filled with all those white misogynistic bigots. The point of the application of this text is that you don't look at other members of the body that come from a different side and say, I don't need you. Because the exact opposite is true. Every member of the body is important. And we see that because, as verse 24 tells us, God reminds us that God has composed the body. Look at it with me. But God has so composed the body that God, in his 
divine sovereign purposes and his providential hand in the indwelling of his spirit is joining men and women and boys and girls throughout seasons and locations in history to form a large universal church. And the expression of that large and universal church is found in local churches that God is actually composing this body of people. Do you believe that? I do. That God has actually put you here and given you a certain gift and given you a certain personality for a greater purpose. Do you believe that? And if we do believe that, then we can never say we don't need each other. God makes his people a body that has unity but not uniformity, that has diversity but not division. And it's interesting, isn't it, that God continues to describe the church in all these most intimate terms and, and, and phrases, that God describes the church as his bride. We talked about that last week, our most intimate relationship in life. You've heard the church called the family of God. We'll talk about that in the coming month. The most intimate relationships that we have. You've heard the church referred to as the house of God. We all need a place to live for shelter. It's vital and important to our survival. And God refers to the church in those types of ways. And here he refers to the church as a body. Within the church, Merrill Tenney writes, within the church of historic Christianity... There have been wide divergences of opinion and ritual. But unity prevails where there is a deep and genuine experience of Christ. He is of the first order. And so the fellowship of new birth that happens when you have fellowship with Christ transcends all the historical and denominational boundaries. Paul of Tarsus, Luther of Germany, Wesley of England, Moody of America would find deep unity with each other, though they were widely separated by time and space and nationality and educational background and ecclesiastical connections. They find this unity and we find this unity in Christ, who is our head. And as we close in prayer and ask God to help us in this unity, we move to a time where we celebrate this unity in one of the most wonderful and visible ways as we take the Lord's Supper. So please pray with me as we prepare for communion. Father God, forgive us of the times that we doubt you and the gifts that you've given us. Forgive us for the times that we overestimate ourselves at the expense of doubting others in the gifts that you've given us. Forgive us for the time that we've been apathetic about our place in the body all along. And help us, Lord, in unity but not uniformity, in diversity but not division, help us to function in a way that pleases our head, Jesus. We know him. We love him. And we want to follow him.